Good morning and welcome to the Wall Street Bulls and Beers podcast. We're joined today by Craig Dickens, who is a partner with CDI Global North America in the Seattle Tacoma office. Craig is a true entrepreneur, CEO, certified M&A advisor, investment banker, and angel investor. He has started or acquired 14 businesses across diverse sectors, as well as executed 22 add-on acquisitions within those companies, creating over 600 million in enterprise value. He graduated from the University of New Hampshire and went on to attend Babson College's top-ranked entrepreneurial MBA program. He holds the Series 24, 82, and 63 securities license and specializes in sell-side M&A, institutional, private debt, and equity placements. As an M&A advisor and investment banker, Craig has unlocked the code to finding greater value for many companies and their owners through the Grow Fast and Exit Profitably methodology, as well as pioneering the M&A 2.0 process. Having participated in virtually every kind of business dynamic from startup to IPO, merger to acquisition, from 2014, he serves now as the CEO and founder of JD Merit, well-established boutique M&A investment banking and advisory firm and broker-dealer with offices nationwide and Western USA CDI Global Office. Thank you so much, Craig, for joining us. Shanaz, thanks so much for having me. Did I miss anything? No, I'm tired just listening to it. I've been <laughs> at this a while. <laughs> it, it is a very impressive CV, so thank you for joining us. So let's just dive into it. You've sold several of your own companies and added 22 acquisitions at the time I did my research to them, making them larger and more valuable. Share a few life lessons on how to win at M&A. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know whether I just had entrepreneurial ADD, but certainly I, <laughs> I enjoy the art of building businesses, scaling businesses, and for most business owners out there, you know, organic growth is one way to do it, and that's a longer path, but also mixing in inorganic growth as part of that equation can get you to the finish line, depending upon how you define your finish line a little bit quicker. So that was the path that I took, and I think M&A is not for the faint of heart. There are lots of traps and pitfalls, and, you know, if you read the papers, not all of them work. So really, I would say that if you're going to pursue that, you know, get excellent advice, have a, a really solid thesis. If you just go out and say, well, I'd like to buy a company, right? That's a recipe for failure. So really understanding what you're looking to achieve, what goals you have for the business and being very selective. A lot of times in, in the deal business, you know, people get caught up in the deal and they tend to fall in love. You really need to think like an investor have some discipline, get some great advice. And it's okay to say no when a deal doesn't feel right, doesn't look right, the math doesn't work. I think that's really having that underlying discipline, uh, you know, is, is really a key to having success in M&A. Thank you so much, Craig. Along those lines, what should business owners know about what buyers want when buying their companies beyond that? So I'm talking about most specifically firm valuations based on EBITDA and multiples, but beyond that, 
What do you think business owners should know about when buyers want to buy their company? Yeah, I think there's, you know, the concept that we use quite often is kind of reverse engineering your exit. Most entrepreneurs are operating at the top of their game. And when they started the company, you know, they were working for the business. When they, you know, had to grow the business and scale it, they were working in the business. When they're thinking about selling and thinking about a buyer, they need to work on the business and almost reverse engineering. Say, how is a buyer going to look at my company? We are often so focused on growing our own business and the differentiation and, you know, the great things about our business and quote unquote selling it. But we need to kind of flip the switch a little bit and say, all right, what is a buyer going to think about my management team? What is a buyer going to think about the surety of my future cash flows, right? How much cash this is going to generate in the next three to five years? Because at the end of the day, if they pay you market, or if we run a broad auction globally and we, we have buyers pay more than market, which is the ideal scenario for sellers, you know, then, then the, the buyers have to think about, okay, how am I going to win? And the only way they're going to win in the investment is if they grow the business. So you also need to think about, we, we, we counsel a lot of sellers, you know, and they have the mindset, look, I've taken it to 50 million. Here's the keys good luck. You know, my team's going to take you the rest of the way. They don't spend a lot of time thinking about a five-year plan, a five-year strategy, a pro forma, consistent growth. You know, we've all seen those decks where the company historically has, I don't know, call it 10, 10% net income. Then all of a sudden, when the seller goes to sell, we see this hockey stick where, oh, it's 12, 15, 18, 20, right? Well, where's that going to come from? Is it defensible? And really you start to shift your mindset and look through the lens of the buyer, that's where you can make some tweaks to your business and, and really increase the value if you look through that lens. And again, you know, having a good investment banker on your team that, that you know, pokes some holes in your strategy purposely so that you're more defensible is going to be the key to getting a great outcome. That's an excellent point. Have you seen pushback from owners when you do that as an investment banker, when you do poke holes? You know, because they've obviously grown the business, so they see it, perhaps valuation. Have you gotten a lot of pushback or do we have? I'm just saying from your perspective. Yeah, you know, there was a study a few years back now by Mass Mutual that highlighted that the average business owner overvalues his business or her business by 59%. Wow. And so, you know, the number one deal killer is seller expectations. And so really part of our job initially, you know, no one likes to be told that their baby's ugly, but ultimately we try to approach that through education, right? And, and making sure that we can say, okay, here's what a premium company sells for. And if you have aspirations to be a premium company and, and receive the benefit from an EBITDA multiple or you know a multiple of revenue, here are the conditions, here are the things that need to be satisfied. And let's work together to solve those or to improve those or to create what we call exit velocity, right? It's a lot easier to sell a company that's moving up and to the right and whose gaps are filled you know, than it is a company who's in decline. So a lot of times we counsel you know, sellers in particular, you know, now may not be the right time. Let's put a shine on the apple a little bit. Let's plug some holes and make sure that we have something that's really going to, you know, hit that 
outlier outcome or that premium outcome for the seller. So the pushback is, is often there and it's our job to accentuate all of the things that they're doing well, but it's also our job to, you know, I call it truth, you know, I call it truth with compassion, right? Deliver the message that eh, we might have a couple of couple of warts here that we need to take care of. And, and generally most sellers that we work with, you know, take that well after, after the initial conversation and pushback. No, very good. Thank you so much. He also, well, they say to begin with the end in mind, what do folks mean about that in the context of achieving company sale? Yeah, it's, you know, it's one of the tough questions that we ask entrepreneurs and having sat in that seat multiple times myself, you know, what do you want? I mean, want is a, is a, is a four letter word and it's, it's a tough question to answer. And a lot of times we find sellers go into a transaction without their wants and their whys really well articulated. So we begin with, okay, five years after the transaction, what is your life going to look like? What are your relationships going to look like? What is success to you? And then we work backwards to say, okay, from a net proceeds, from a quality of life, from a, you know, do you want to stick around with the company for the, you know, the, the second bite of the apple, you know, and help run it and help grow it? Really understanding a seller's objectives and helping them figure out what they want is, is you know, beginning with the end in mind. And again, so many entrepreneurs, you know, work in the business. And, you know, they need to really start transitioning to trust their leadership team, put a second in command. You know, one of the things we, we, we often counsel sellers, hey, have you ever taken a four-week vacation where you unplugged from the business, right? That's a true testament to, you know, how are you going to do without daily going to the office, without looking at your numbers, without checking in on, you know, on your team, you know, really getting prepared for that, for that end in mind. Very good. Thank you so much. Can you share from your perspective, what are some of the most frequent deal killers and how our audience can avoid those? Yeah, great question. Thank you for it. You know, again, I mentioned the seller expectations. That's probably number one. So just because your friend got a eight multiple of EBITDA M&A deal doesn't mean that your company is exactly, you know, going to fit in that bucket. And we throw around EBITDA multiples as a measure of valuation, but certainly seller expectations is one. The second, you know, entrepreneurs tend to prize growth more so than other aspects of the business. And again, in today's buyer's market where you have strategic buyers and financial buyers, just by nature of that second group, private equity, they are financial buyers, right? So they care about finance, accounting, you know, to them, it's, it's not about their passion for the industry, perhaps. They haven't been lifelong operators. So the quality of your accounting, the quality of your finance, the quality of your risk controls, I would say deal killer number two for companies, and we deal with companies typically from 10 million to 250 million. The 10 million is more kind of software, ARR type companies, but certainly mostly 20 to 250 million. You know, those buyers are going to really scrutinize the, the quality of, of, of your financials. And, you know, they will walk away from a deal if they don't trust your numbers and if they don't trust the accounting and you know, your CPA is going to have to sign off on the deal. 
you know, so, so really that's probably number, the second largest deal killer. And then, you know, ultimately people buy customers and management team. So the strength of your customers, the longevity of your relationships, are they contractual, right? Those kind of attributes of a deal get deals done. And then again, your management team, if they're willing to stick around, if they're willing to take the mantle when the, the you know, shareholder or principal owner leaves, you know, a strong management team, if you have holes in that team, that could potentially kill a deal. So you're, you're wise to fill those holes. Even if it costs you a little bit of money to do it, it could cost you a deal if you don't do it. So if you don't have a great CFO or if you don't have a VP of marketing that's really driving revenue, you know, those are things that, that, that could cost you. But those are typically, in my mind, the top three that, that will kill a deal. Thank you so much. You have popularized M&A axioms to give sellers and buyers poignant truisms about M&A. Can you share a few of those with us? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, top of mind was just, you know, last week, I think my marketing team posted one on, on, on LinkedIn. A deal's not done until a deal's done. So even though you have an LOI, even though you're in diligence, and again, I think sellers tend to exhale a little bit, relationships and trusts are developed through the process between buyer and seller. But until that check clears, until that deal is done, you're never truly aligned with your buyer. And even if there's contingent compensation involved, if you have an earnout or a seller note, right, you really need to be ready for a marathon to get to the closing table. And we see sellers sometimes in diligence will they'll, they'll relax. They've got an LOI. Phew, I can I can see I have a liquidity event coming, and they tend to you know leave diligence to their CFO or their controller, maybe back off a little bit, and sometimes mentally start spending the money before it's earned. I think to me that you know, a deal's not done until a deal's done is, is, you know, an incredible truism and great for sellers to keep in mind and have that marathon attitude versus, you know, letting their guard down, so to speak. And to be frank, you will have seen this as well, but a lot of deals fall apart in the 11th hour. So that couldn't be more true. Absolutely. How can business owners shift from working in the business to basically on the business and what implications to value does that have? Yeah, I mean, that's a crucial attribute. The, the sellers that have the most success, I think, in terms of, of meeting their wants, and if many of them, you know, we have boomers that, baby boomers that have really delayed exit. They wanted to exit before the pandemic. They wanted to exit before this current, you know, growth recession or whatever you want to call it. So, you know, they, they really need to work on the business to ensure that they can exit and, and walk away within a reasonable time period. And again, you know, I mentioned a couple of things before relative to developing your second in command. You know, private equity investors in particular, they, they want to know who's going to have the ball after the owner leaves. And you know, even strategic investors, they, they want to know what that team's going to look like. And so working on the development of your management team, on the business, de-risking the business, is really a great way to ensure that you can get to that closing table and, you know, walk away if, if you want to walk away. Thank you so much. How does rapid growth before sale increase value exponentially? Yeah, I think, you know, again, if we think about the life cycle of a business, you know, the stages are pretty well defined. You've got, you know, startup growth, 
maturity and then decline. And so if a lot of entrepreneurs have approached their business as a lifestyle business, and it is, you know, lots of toys in the garage, put the kids through college, you know, the second home in the mountains, right? All of these things are attributes of being, you know, an entrepreneur and running a successful business. But ultimately, you know, growth and showing that you have sustainable growth is valuable. If we look at SaaS companies in particular, you know, the, the reason some of the SaaS companies, at least historically, have, have achieved incredible multiples, and you've, you see it every day, right? It's because of that growth rate. And oftentimes we have entrepreneurs will say, well, I'm growing, you know, 10% a year. Well, if you're an MSP, a managed service provider providing IT services, and your industry is growing 30% a year, right, you're going to be a laggard, not a leader. So certainly any company with positive growth, especially in this type of market where growth is fairly hard to come by, is going to demand a premium. And while it's natural for most entrepreneurs to think about growth, that's we did a survey and that survey was of entrepreneurs, investment bankers, and private equity investors. And the, as a matter of fact, the entrepreneurs prized growth the most. The investment bankers said their largest category was quality of earnings, right? So what do we have contractual revenue and all of that? But buyers, especially PE buyers, they identified differentiation as the most important attribute to selecting a company. So if they're looking at 10 companies like yours, you know, they're going to look for something that they can maybe charge a premium through differentiation, grow faster through differentiation. If you've got something that's different than every Me Too out there, and you can show that through your growth rate, you'll get rewarded. Excellent. Um, talk to us about uh, building generational wealth through M&As. Yeah, it's, you know, really, and, and if you go back to my personal journey, you know, I, I, I added several companies to the companies that I started or acquired, and it was a mix. I started seven and I acquired seven did add-ons and bolt-on acquisitions, you know, and I think the lesson that, that I learned through that is, and having had exits on those companies, the fundamentals of the market still apply. You have to diversify your wealth. I had an exit and I bought insurance products with some of the proceeds and I bought real estate with some of the proceeds, right? What we see generally with companies under 250 million and their owners, you know, most of their net worth is tied up in the company and they've received a good lifestyle and, and maybe even, you know, exceeded the cost of capital in terms of their returns on that investment. But really diversification, you know, if you're not jamming as much, you know, proceeds out of the company to benefit from the company in a retirement or a top hat program or whatever, right? You need to think about that and not let all your chips ride. So while M&A is really the general, the generational wealth creator, because that's a significant pop, you know, my advice is also make sure you're taking care of the family, you're taking care of the day-to-day, -day, having discipline and diversifying your assets, not just within the company. And then ultimately, you know, as we've seen, the world has discovered the middle market, you know, smaller companies are being invested in. So I think, you know, the, the likelihood and the odds of you achieving an M&A event, you know, in this market, it's better every year. There's now 18,000 private equity companies in North America. 
that are investing in these small companies because they do provide a return and an opportunity to professionalize them. So I think M&A needs to be, you know, part of your thinking, unless you're going to, you know, pass it on to the next generation. But I also want to, you know, make sure that entrepreneurs are, are taking care of the boring stuff, right? Pulling X percent out a year, you know, investing in equities, investing in bonds, investing in real estate, because it is a little bit Russian roulette because you may not get an M&A event. Who knows when the next pandemic or fill in the blank, right? So you always have to be prepared for that. But, but ultimately to create that generational wealth and to make sure that your family that you're able to monetize the sale of that business. And the other thing, and this will sound self-serving, but we see a lot of people waste a lot of time and energy trying to do it themselves. And, you know, it's it, the day traders too, and in, in, in that side of the market, right? You, you may be good at it, but, and you may be excellent at running your company, but when it comes to selling your company and creating liquidity, trust the experts to help you get there. It'll, it'll save you a lot of time and heartache. That's a great advice. So uh, you've talked quite a bit about private equity uh, firms and what they look for. What have you seen from strategic buyers and perhaps the different point of views from that perspective, not private equity uh, firms, but strategic buyers and sellers? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, J.D. Merritt, we have a distribution of almost 50-50 between private equity buyers and strategic buyers. And they think a little bit differently. Obviously, the strategic is, you know, buying your geography, buying your customer base, maybe buying some of your technology, but they're thinking about how you fit in their larger company. And typically we see strategics anywhere. There's something called another axiom called the, the five and 20 rule. So while a lot of entrepreneurs say, oh, I'm going to sell to Microsoft or I'm going to sell to, you know, Chrysler or who, whoever, right? And name a big, big company. You know, typically a buyer is going to be five times larger than you because anything less than that, they're betting the farm. It's pretty risky. Or they'll be somewhere up to about 20 times larger than you because anything over than that, a billion dollar or a multi-billion dollar company, you're not going to move their needle if they buy you, unless you have some secret sauce or some technology. So strategic buyers think a little bit differently. And, you know, it does create opportunity for entrepreneurs because they typically have a management team that's well-functioning, a sales team that's well-functioning, CFOs and, you know, other people at, at corporate. So it does sometimes increase your walkaway power to sell to a strategic. I would say, you know, kind of the other difference in today's market where private equity has been really active and they've actually kind of beat out strategics for the first time last year in terms of deal volume, they're very competitive and they're, they're buying lots of deals. The script has flipped a little bit because, you know, strategics have a lot of cash on the balance sheet and private equity in this lending environment is having a harder time, you know, getting the debt that they need to get the returns that their LPs are looking for or their investors are looking for, you know, and at 10% at interest rates all in, you know, that that's a tougher task for them. So we see strategics stepping up to the plate and, you know, here you go. Here's, here's the cash, right? They'll stroke the check and not have to worry about the leverage side of the equation that private equity does. So you also, you know, have to pick your, make sure that you have, you're talking to enough people, make sure that it's the right fit and the right size. And we spend a lot of time positioning the company to get that right fit 
and again, we want to make sure that there's strategics and private equity and even family offices and, and other investors in that mix when we take a company to market. Thank you so much. Tell us about any good books that you would recommend. Good books. So I'm actually rereading. I read this book when it first came out. This is a business book, and I think it's good for, well, there's two books that I'll recommend on the business side for, for entrepreneurs. One is Time Really Is Money. It's by a gentleman, Rob Slee. He also wrote some capital markets books, but, you know, I'll, I'll use Warren Buffett. You know, Warren Buffett wakes up and he thinks about doing $100,000 an hour work, right? He's working on big scale thinking, right? A lot of us get trapped in our business and, and the working in the business concept. You know, sometimes we do $20 an hour work, right? Uh, we go, oh, you know, I'm just going to go do that myself, right? That That's the journey. So time really is money. You know, Rob really highlights that, you know, as entrepreneurs, we should be thinking about $1,000 an hour work as business leaders. And, you know, if our, as our business gets bigger and we have more of a team behind us, right, we should be thinking about thousand or excuse me, $5,000 an hour problems. It's a way to really discipline yourself in terms of what you work on. The other one, and I'd recommend this for every business that is in probably 20 to 60 million Doug Tatum wrote a book called No Man's Land, and it was, it, I don't know, he wrote it probably eight or 10 years, but there's the four problems that companies that size run into. So I would say that's a great book. On the personal side, I'm, I'm reading a book on, uh, I'm kind of a history buff, a closet history buff, but I'm reading a book called The Road to Disaster. It's a history of America's kind of backward descent into Vietnam. So, you know, it has some good war stuff in it, as well as some political drama. So I, I just started that. I'm, I'm only a couple chapters in, but, but it's so far so good. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, question. You're most welcome, Craig. Thank you so much for joining us. How can people find you? Yeah, I'm so on LinkedIn. That's, that's pretty easy. Craig Dickens. And my email is Craig Dickens, Craig.Dickens, excuse me, at JD Merritt. And if I may, you know, my passion is helping first-time sellers, you know, attract institutional capital or achieve a sale. So I'm, I'm writing a book presently called Deal of a Lifetime, and it's the keys to unlocking tra trapped wealth in your business through M&A. So it'll be out in October. So that'll, uh, I just want to want to plug the book upcoming and I'd be happy to talk to any entrepreneur who's at an inflection point with their life or their business. So between the email and, and LinkedIn, those are probably the easiest or our website at uh, jdmerritt.com. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you for sharing so much amazing insights. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And I'm looking forward to doing more work together. Thank you.